This is episode 187. Today we learn about creating a common space for both the language required in academic settings and identity-based languages to thrive in the same place. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. I play badminton a lot, and many times I play with Cambodian teenagers. I notice that they all speak to each other in mostly English, but at times they switch over to a word or a sentence or a phrase in Khmer. As a language nerd, I couldn't resist. I had to ask them why they did this. They said that it's the rule to speak English at their international school, not my international school. So they actually prefer using English. But at times, English doesn't have the same words to fit the exact meaning of what they want to say. That's where the Khmer comes in. It's this separating of languages into separate spaces and spheres that is problematic. This is the exact topic that Dr. Michelle Benengas and Dr. Natalia Benjamin will share in this podcast conversation based on their book by the same name. The guiding question of this book and the podcast is how can we bring these two worlds together in service of learning and expression. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited to have Natalia Benjamin and Dr. Michelle Benengas on the podcast to talk about their latest book called Language of Identity, Language of Access, Liberatory Learning in the Multilingual Classroom. This book is about how to bring language and identity together. Welcome both to the podcast. Thank you. So excited to be here. Thank you, Tan. Can you please tell us about your a story that has really impacted your teaching to this day? My story is a little personal. So it has to do a lot with our decision with my husband to raise our children bilingually and them not having access to bilingual resources, bilingual education at all. And so that's really what's driven my uh, to pursue teaching eventually. And uh, just the passion to, to help other multilingual learners find a space where they can be themselves, but also find a place where they can navigate the multiplicity of identities as multilingual individuals in monolingual settings, mostly in the United States. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like, how did you start that decision and how has that impacted your practice? For sure. So um, I moved from Guatemala uh, to come to college and my parents live in Guatemala. My grandparents mostly speak Spanish. And so it was important that our children kept that connection um, with their extended family members. And so it was a no brainer. We both speak Spanish. And so we wanted our children to grow up doing that. But when we moved um, and we, uh, there just were no options. And so we actually started a business to teach early childhood in an immersion setting. And then after school Spanish and French, while they were able to get access to formal 
um, Spanish classes and so forth. And then when we moved to Minnesota, uh, we I sold that business and we kind of found ourselves in the same shoes again. Like there's no options. What what can we do for our kids? Um, and I eventually started subbing uh, at the schools. And then I spent so much time there that I made the official decision to pursue a licensure in um, English as a second language. And then just hoping to to make spaces for you know these beautiful just children um in hopes to provide things that maybe my kids didn't have access to um in their journey so from um a business to a licensor to now a Coleman author what a beautiful journey this is just the beginning thank you michelle yeah, well, I guess I'll start by saying um, my my husband is from Argentina. We have three daughters and our twins just graduated from high school and launched. And they're asking themselves, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? And my husband and I both joked that our jobs didn't even exist um, when we were kids. Um, so he is a, he works in IT security. So he keeps uh, bank systems safe from hackers. Um, and I am a professor of, you know, ESL teacher education and, um, the, the license, the English teacher license didn't even exist in my state when I was a child. Um, and so, you know, this was never a vision for me because it, because it didn't exist. And because I grew up in a really homogeneous white space. Um, and so it wasn't until I was pursuing my uh, teaching license, I wanted to be a Spanish teacher, and my professor sent me to my first clinical and said, I'm so sorry, we can't get you a placement in um, in, in a Spanish classroom. We're going to send you to this high school of all immigrants and refugees. Um, and this <clears throat> privileged private school girl was, you know, kind of knocked off her feet that I was going to have to use public transportation. Um, it was, you know, now I look back on it and I laugh, um, but it was the most important turning point, I would say, in, in my career and in my personal life um, that I went to, you know, fulfill a 30 hour placement. I stayed for 90 hours. I got that Spanish license, but I quickly headed down to another urban university where I am now a professor to get my ESL license. Um, and I stayed at that school for five years um, and it's been my life's work. Um, of course, then I moved on to, you know, marry an immigrant, you, you know, the rest of the story. But, um, but I realized, wow, schooling can do things that I never imagined. Um, I imagined that in school, you know, I could learn a language so that I could go on a trip. That that's really kind of, you know, the, the mentality that I was in as a young person. Um, but coming into a space, in this case of adult or high school um, multilingual learners of English, I recognized, wow, this is a space for liberation. This is a space for really getting to know people groups that are here in my community that I wasn't even aware of. So so I think sometimes we have those critical moments as young people. And, and that was mine, was the professor not being able to find a placement for me. So everything happens for a reason for both of you, I think. That's right. So let's talk about your the seed of your book. Every book has a seed. What was the seed for this collaboration, this book? Well, I'll, I'll share that, um, you know, coming into the pandemic. So if we think about 2020, um, I had just published a book called Teacher Leadership for Schoolwide English Learning with uh, TESOL Press. I'm very proud of that book. Um, 
there's a chapter on academic language. And uh, a few months after that book was published, um, George Floyd was murdered about a mile from where I live. Um, and we all kind of, you know, sat in our homes and were just very cognizant of the pain that communities were experiencing. And um, and an association of Black linguists put out a statement, and the statement read um, that they no longer accept terms like standard English or academic English because those terms are rooted in white supremacy. And I sat with that statement. I had built my career on the concept of academic language. I had just published a book with an entire chapter dedicated to the idea of academic language. Yet, I could not ignore that. I could not ignore a community of scholars, people saying, hey, we've been injured by this concept. So I sat with it for a long time. Um, and I ended up kind of talking to folks in, in my community, and I found that there are really kind of these kind of two polarized camps, the academic language camp, and then the kind of translanguaging camp. Um, and I was talking to a good colleague, a close colleague and friend, Dr. Jenna Cushing Lubner, and she said, you know, who would be a fantastic co-author for you? Natalia Benjamin. And that's how I met Natalia. We actually first met at a dinner with Nelson Flores at the, the Minnesota English Learner Educator Conference, um, but that was just briefly. So then I, I hit her up later and said, Natalia, I got to talk to you about this idea. And she loved it. And here we are. Do you want to add, Natalia? I, I just find um, fascinating, you know, Michelle just talked about her journey, but my journey and unlearning a lot of what we... Um, I would say impose uh, in schools was was similar where, you know, I learned languages through, you know, you learn the vocabulary, the grammar, those pieces, and, and you try to communicate. Um, but it wasn't until I started digging deeper into, um, you know, this idea of just home maintenance and identity and and what our heritage speakers need in, in our in in life really and just to to really develop positive identities that I that I had to do a lot of unlearning, a lot of really thinking about what does it mean to have um whatever good language is, right? Whether it's good Spanish or good English or whatever that is. And how do we honor students' linguistic backgrounds and provide opportunities to develop complex language, you know, whatever that means, whatever field it is. And so just wrestling with that and, and shifting my practice from um, standard language to really just uplifting language and creating opportunities for rich language experiences um, without having students shed their identities in the classroom. And so I, I think in that sense, it, it became a good partnership with Michelle to just put our heads together to to share what, what our journeys have been about. Yeah, a lot of um, the way that I teach was the way that I've been taught. And I feel like a lot of what we do is about unlearning. And there were great things that my teachers have done in the past, but there are things that like, oh, okay, new research has says, maybe we shouldn't do that. So it's it's going to the research and saying, how do I do this in a different way? So uh, your book is going to be part of that as well. Let's talk about your new title. Let's talk about the, the term language of access first. Can we talk about that? Sure, absolutely. So, so in thinking about kind of the 
the problems associated with the term academic language. I, I thought about, you know, where does the academic come from, right? It comes from academy. And what is an academy? Um, it is a, it's a selective institution that's for some people, right? Um, and, and there's definitely some kind of gatekeeping connotations around the word academy. Um, and so I thought, you know, what would be another qualifier that um, implies that I need this language in order to be successful in this other space, right? Um, but doesn't necessarily have the baggage that the word academic has. Um, and that's how I came to access because really it's not even the language of school, right? I, when I go to the auto mechanic and they tell me what's wrong with my car, I don't always understand what they're telling me. Uh, because I don't have the language of access in an auto body shop. Um, and so really it's, you know, what is the language of access in a particular community and how can we offer that to our students? We can't deny that that's important. Um, so, you know, for a while there, I was really sitting in the, you know, maybe academic language, maybe the concept of academic language is just problematic throughout. And we should just be thinking about, you know, the supporting home language bend um, and as I was, as I was leaning that way, which as you'll see in the book, I don't think it's right to lean one way or the other, but as I was leaning that way, um, a, a professor reached out to me uh, from California. At this time, I was the chair of the teacher education intersection of TESOL International. And she said, I'd like to coordinate a panel on translanguaging. And she's a professor of color and she had coordinated all of these professors of color and they all wanted to talk about translanguaging. And my brain went to, okay, I think that these are, folks are really in support of translanguaging. And I had a meeting with her and she said, so here's the thing, we all work in IEPs, intensive English programs in universities. I prepare students to go to med school specifically, she says. They need the language of med school. So this translanguaging stuff is really messing us up. Um, if, if I have all of these students show up and I say, hey, you can use your home language or you can use your home language variety, they very well may not get into med school. And that blew the top off my head, right? And it made me think like, wow, I have got to break out of this binary thinking. It is not one or the other. The language of access is absolutely critical. Her students do need that language in order to get into med school. And they need to value and validate the languages that they bring into the space. Um, so that for me was kind of the, it's, it's not an either or, it's a both and, and the language of access is how can you access new spaces? It's the keeping the language that you have, adding a new language so you can access different communities. Natalia, you wanna add? No, I think that is, is it's key, right? Because language has been used in, in many ways to either keep communities from accessing different spaces um, or also to to really decide, right, um, who has the right to access what. And so that access is, is definitely important if we're looking for um, for thriving communities where everybody can access and be successful and, and fulfill their dreams in whatever shape or form they, they wish to pursue. Let's move to the other part. It's like a yin yang. Um, let's move to the language of identity. Yeah, I'll start with that. And I think uh, for the language of identity is is critical to understand a little bit of the history of, of language and how language has been used um, to harm a lot of the communities, uh, especially communities of color. 
in, in colonized spaces. Um, we have a history of erasure of languages, erasure of, of cultures as a way to, to keep people in check and to keep people um, in submissive or, you know, just different spaces without access. And so I think it's important to name that because that has shaped a lot of the policies um, in many spaces where we've had a lot of English only movements or, right, we're always moving towards just a dominant language taking up space. And so when we think of what that does to communities, but also individuals, and especially our students in, in school spaces is that um, it really diminishes their own perception of who they are. And, and then they're in this battle and that struggle to really figure out who am I? Can I be both or do I just have to be the one dominant that is um, uplifted and accepted everywhere? And, um, and that has an effect and it has an impact on their overall academic uh, achievements in general. So when I think of the language of identity is thinking, how is language um, the, the language identity of our students, who is part of who they are, alive? How is it uplifted? How is it not uplifted in our spaces? And so really thinking of what are ways that we can um, really build positive multilingual identities for our students while we are providing access to different spaces because they don't have to choose, right? They, they can be both. And, and I think that's the biggest message that, that I would want young people to understand is, um, and, I, and, and my daughter just laughs at this too because it's something that she wrote in her college essay actually, um, that they're not half anything, like they're double. They have double the power. Um, and so it's just, they're whole and, and, and it's a good thing. I like that. They're not half of anything, they're double other things. Uh, mm -hmm. Michelle, can I talk to you about, can you go back to what did you, how did you respond to the uh, the group of professors who said like, hey, translanguaging is is difficult and and to connect it with to what Natalia said about like identity? Well, I, in meeting with this professor, I told her that I, I was, what she had to say was unexpected to me. Um, and that I was learning from her. Um, and, and I, and I asked her questions around kind of the, the spirit behind, you know, the, um, language of identity, which is the language that we've now applied to it. And she said, absolutely. I don't take away from that. And if they want access to this new space, they need to have these words. Um, and so, you know, her, her specific, flavor of instruction was kind of a class, a crash course in medical terminology. Um, and so, you know, can you be using home language? Sure, but you still need to be learning these particular terms in order to pass the test in order to be successful in this new space. So, so I would say that I think that what's, it's less interesting how I responded to her because I was a little baffled and more interesting how she really offered me a new perspective and and helped me to break out of this binary thinking that it's an either or. Let's move on to the uh, practical part of your book. You have actually three sections, one about translanguaging, one about community, wealth, and culture, and then one about, the last one is about the dimensions of uh, academic language or language of access. So it's the word, sentence, and discourse level. Let's go through each of them. Let's first talk about um, the practical applications for translanguaging. I'll start with that. And I think uh, translanguage is such a fascinating um, just 
idea and concept because many of the theories of language have been done through adding another language, right? And how do we learn another language? And I think translanguaging is the first, um, you know, author that addresses translanguaging from a bilingual perspective, the, the perspective of bilingual individuals. And um, and, and, I, and I, I really appreciated that. And there's that wrestling, right, of, okay, well, let's have everybody use all of their languages. And then, well, but what does that mean if we're trying to move towards uh, fluency of English, for example, or Spanish or whatever the dominant language is in the classrooms. And uh, it is that tension between, we know that the more time we spend in um, in a language, then the faster, you know, individuals will learn it. And so how do we balance those pieces? And what I, what I love about translanguaging is that we are using bilingual brains to learn. It's what we are using the multiplicity of language to add to um, to the journey in, in language learning. And, and that can be tricky because when you're in a classroom uh, of multilingual students, you may not have the resources in every language. You may not speak the languages of all your students, and that could be tricky to leverage those pieces. Um, but what I love is opening the door for, for my students to, to not get stuck, to be able to say, if you cannot find the word that you're thinking of, um, let's use what you know, let's lean on each other, and let's learn together. And that was actually also a personal thing that I had to do because um, I still have a, a multilingual brain, even though I've lived in the United States for so long. And I think for, for a large part of my life, um, I existed in separate worlds and I'm learning to to just as I'm speaking and the words come in another language to just acknowledge that and make it just a to normalize the fact that that we can have those languages come and go and, and that's okay and we can learn from that and so I think in the practical pieces for teachers is thinking what are the languages in my classrooms what resources can I find so that we can all learn whatever concept it is that we're doing? And then what are the specific features of English that we're all learning to get there? And so just breaking that down a little bit um, rather than just existing in English only spaces is I think what has helped me to make this concept practical in the classroom to support students. Michelle, do you want anything to add to that? Yeah, I would just say that I think that the way that Natalia just described, um, she said, I, I still have a multilingual brain. I love that so much. And it, it makes me think of when Ophelia Garcia talks about what translanguaging is. Um, so she says, you know, translanguaging is not a, it's not a practice. It's not something that people do. It is a cognitive process that is taking place, but you can't like agree or disagree with it, right? Natalia's brain is going to be pulling on all of the linguistic resources that she has at all times, and she may or may not suppress some of those resources. So I may or may not see them. Um, but but so it makes me think of like, you know, something like allergies, for example. I can't say like, what's your opinion on allergies, right? Like they just exist and translanguaging just is, right? It just is how multilingual brains work. Um, and, and so this is more a matter of like, let's just embrace what we know about cognitive science and, and support the brilliant brains in our classrooms. Brilliant brains in the classroom, love it, both students and colleagues who are multilingual. 
let's move to talking about practical applications of theory. So this was kind of something that was important to both Natalia and I when we went to write this book. Oftentimes in, in the world of publishing, you know, they'll ask, well, is this a book for practitioners or is this a book for, you know, university? Um, and I really struggle. Here we are again talking about an, another binary, right? Like we humans are so fiercely tribal. You support football team A or football team B. You are a Republican or you are a Democrat. Which team are you on? Um, and that's really problematic um, to say, you know, is this a teacher book or is this a university book? Um, frankly, I think it it should be both, right? The, I don't I don't see the need for strictly university books um, when it comes to teacher education. Of course, it has to have everything to do with practice. Um, but let's not belittle teachers and and say that. So therefore, theory has no place there. I'm, I find that highly problematic as well. And so what Natalia and I did here is pull on what is known from the scholarship um, and and not simmer with it for too long, immediately turn it into a practical application. So we're aware of a variety of theories in the field. Uh, community and cultural wealth is one that Natalia writes about quite a bit. So given what we know about this particular theory, what would that look like in the classroom? So what we call a PAT, a practical application of theory, is really um, just a, a classroom approach, a classroom strategy that you can use in order to activate that particular type of language. Would you like to share some of those uh, strategies and let, let us simmer a little bit in them? Well, I can share one from the language of access and then maybe Natalia can write and speak to the language of identity. Um, and by the way, if you haven't noticed yet, those are the tribes that we embody here in this book. Um, I very much have, you know, been speaking to the language of access background because that is my professional background and Natalia has been speaking to the language of identity, of course, coming together. Um, but when it comes to language of access or, you know, what has been called academic language in the past, um, there has been what I call the vocabulary trap. Um, so when people are teaching new language, they say, well, I'm just going to teach them a bunch of words. Um, as long as I'm teaching vocabulary, they've got it. Um, and, and vocabulary is great, but it is just one part of one level of language, right? Um, and so, so um, there's an entire section in this, in this book on word level, as well as sentence level and discourse level. But at the word level, I just put vocabulary on a shelf and I say, we're going to focus on morphology. Uh, what we know from the research is that when, when learners understand word parts, they can make sense of unknown words in ways that students who just memorize word lists cannot. Um, so this particular PAT, Practical Application of Theory, offers a variety of strategies for teaching morphemes in the classroom, um, whether it be you know science or math, whether it be elementary, whether it be high school. Um, I, I pull in some resources from the University of Minnesota's medical school where they have a courses on morphology, because back to medical students, you need to know morphemes in order to practice medicine. Um, so that kind of debunks any critique around, but isn't this too elementary for my students? Um, so, so that would be one way in which, you know, we offer some practical applications of theory. You can pull these tools into your classroom tomorrow and help students break words apart into word parts so that they can make sense of unknown words in the future. 
Yeah, I'm using word, word morphology in my class for the first time with my uh, multilingual. So I'm taking the unit words, uh, the main unit words, uh, and then I'm, I set them out. And each one, each word, let's, let's take the word adversity. That's the one of the unit words we're looking at learning. So I've written adverse, adversely. And so students are, or let's say the word um, engagement. Sorry. So students, part of the, um, this unit is, is the word engagement. And so students are, are saying like the words uh, engaging, engage, engages, engagement. Um, and so students are looking at that word and like, what does M-E-N? Oh, that's, so I'm telling them that's a noun. I-N-G is a verb that's happening. And so E-D is the past tense, but it also can be an adjective. And, and so we're, we're looking at these words because these they they happen again when we look at other words in the theme in the thematic words and so students are learning how to say those words how to read those words but to identify that oh when i see the word shun like in the word contribution that's a noun but when i see the words contributing that's not a noun and so that's a verb and so students are um, using that time to because they're learning how to decode uh, but they're using that we're using that time to also learn word morphology that's great. I love hearing that. And and I know that you are in you're in Cambodia, right, Tan? Um, so not necessarily, you know, uh, home languages that have the same kind of parents or backgrounds as English. Um, but for many teachers here in our in our in the United States who are teaching, you know, students are coming in with languages that um, you know have you know similar backgrounds to English therefore have cognates so a lesson in morphemes is just going to summon translanguaging right um, as soon as I pull out you know anti or con some of these you know prefixes that exist across languages that have a, a Latin background um, it's just an open door for talking about other languages which then connects to the another pat would you like to talk about uh, community culture and wealth Natalia Yes. Um, I So Community Cultural Wealth by Tara uh, Yoso, she talks about all the things that communities do um, just to survive and thrive. And uh, I, I loved that theory and that concept because it helped me better understand myself, but also my communities. And it's not necessarily something that that we turn around and always teach our students, but I found that, that there was a lot of power for them to understand those things about themselves as well. And so I I teach it in, in my class uh, that supports multilingual students, and we use that actually to study um, when we're when we're reading stories and actually also to tell our own stories. And so one thing that we did was we we learned about community cultural wealth first, but then um, I wanted to uplift the stories of my students and their families. So they chose one person that they were going to interview from uh, their community. It could be a family member. It could be somebody from church. It could be somebody that they knew, um, anybody. And so their assignment was to go and interview it. Um, they transcribed it. Uh, some of them did it in, in their home language because they're the person they picked. Um, didn't speak English. And then they created a story about that person um, just to share with everybody else. But part of the assignment was to also look at this person's story and identify what were the parts of community cultural wealth that they portrayed in their journey uh, as immigrants in the United States. Um, and then we shared it with, every, like, we had like a gallery walk. And so 
students were able to listen to their peers, um, photo voice projects, and then give feedback and learn from each other. And, and I found that that was a good way to not only help them understand all the positive things from their community, whether it was linguistic capital, whether it was navigational capital, uh, any other things that that people did in the community, social capital, like all of the things that we do to to be successful uh, in life. But as they were doing this, right, we're working through what Michelle's talking about, that language of access. We're telling stories. So what is the past tense that we need to be able to convey the meaning of what happened? Um, what are the story structures that we need in order to tell a good story? And so, um, yes, we're working on identity. We're working on things that are meaningful and relevant and authentic to our students. And we're working with language at all those levels, whether it's the vocabulary piece or the sentence structure pieces or just at the discourse level so that there's a coherence in, in the message that they're um, that the students are sending in. So you can start to see the layers, right, of, of the work that students are doing in the classrooms. But it starts with um, a theory that very much is just, let's just understand communities to how do we use this for students to understand the world around them um, and develop their language skills at the same time. Yeah. I like that, how, how we can use this as a way for students to understand their world around them. Let's talk about the world around them in terms of word, word sentence, and uh, organization level, discourse level, which are the features of academic language. Can you talk about how we can uh, connect language and identity in, 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 in taking these features of, of language together? Absolutely. I think I'll share a, a story um, to respond to this question. Um, I learn the most when I go into classrooms. And a few years ago, I went into Kelsey Turnbull's classroom at Roseville High School in Minnesota. And uh, that particular staff um, under the leadership of Christina Robertson had been doing a deep dive into genre and form pedagogy, so systemic functional linguistics. And this is a brilliant group of teachers. And so I was curious, I wanted to see, you know, how is this done? And I went into Kelsey's class. And um, so again, this is a high school class, and they were learning about podcasts, which I thought was so, so important and interesting, because this is uh, an important way of discourse right now, right? Um, and so what she had them do, you know, is kind of central to systemic functional linguistics is the teaching and learning cycle. The first part being, let's listen to a bunch of podcasts and let's identify some linguistic features. How is a podcast different from a TED Talk, for example? Um, how is a podcast different from, you know, like a conversation with your friend on the phone? So they identified some linguistic norms in podcasts. Um, kind of ironic that we're doing a podcast right now as I'm telling the story. Um, but they identified some linguistic norms in the podcasts. Um, and so that was the, of course, the, the joint deconstruction. And then they constructed together. So knowing what we know, and if we wanted to make a class podcast about a particular topic, you know, what would it be about? And what language pieces would we need to have? And then they were sent on their own to create podcasts about things that they were interested in. So we're talking skateboarding, Pokemon, you know, maybe an ethnic food that they eat at home, whatever it might be. Um, and so that was such a cool way to see. We recognize that there are certain bones that you need to have in order to recreate this genre, right? In order for it to be recognizable as a podcast. But please bring your whole self to it. 
So please teach us some new words that you use in your home language. Um, if you want to use, you know, what previously might have been considered slang, by all means, use it. That doesn't make you any less smart. In fact, it makes you more interesting. Um, so how can you do both of those things at the same time? So I love that example from Kelsey because Kelsey Turnbull, because when she did it, she had them notice discourse level norms. Um, so, you know, that this is maybe a back and forth conversation or an interview. She had them notice sentence level norms. So are we speaking in the present tense? What tense are we speaking in? She had them recognize word level norms um, and then construct with all of those pieces. So that would be an example that I think of, of, of really offering students the tools to, to kind of do both. That's a really beautiful example of um, merging both identity and language, uh, language access together. Like their students have to and use word sentence level features, but they also are now able to use slang and they're able to use their heritage languages. They're able to use uh, quote unquote uh, different types of colloquialism. And so this, uh, and the language that where they come from for that context, let's say, let's say that they're interviewing someone from a barber shop. And so they're using that language. They're, it's okay to use that language or they're interviewing someone about their experience in a bodega and like, how did you start this bodega? And so that kind of language is going to be different. Um, it's a really wonderful example of how we could bring it together where these, these ideas of language of access and language of identity don't have to live in separate worlds, but they can be complementary companions together. Is there anything else that um, we've, we've come to the end of the podcast. Is there anything else that you wanted to share that I didn't get to go uh that you didn't get to mention? I just wanted to touch on one more thing, because when we talk about the language of identity, um, we we do a lot of work to uplift our students' identities and to just really connect um, classroom content to their own experiences. Uh, but I want to add this idea of criticality to the language of identity. And so when we, when we read about... Um, culturally and relevant linguistic sustaining pedagogies. It's it's all about just uplifting their identities, but also being able to understand the world and use that criticality to really understand our own experiences, but also the experiences of our communities and how do we um how do we bring that lens to make our communities better? And so in the in this pursuit of building the language of access for our students through identity work. I think this is why it's so important also to bring that research piece, because when we can teach our students some of these concepts of um, whether it is community cultural wealth or whether it is language orientations or whether it is power dynamics, they're able to make sense of the world and they're able to really um, name their experiences, especially as multilingual learners as, as multilingual speakers and to really um, have the tools necessary to understand when different dynamics are at play and to be able to to find solutions and to look for things that that make things better uh, and I'll just give a quick example so uh, one of the times uh, we were talking a class about uh, orientations of language and the students I asked the students to go around the school and just take pictures of language what did they see and then just come up to 
Um, are we valuing and uplifting all sorts of languages? Are we uplifting just one sort of language? And it was super fascinating to see them come up with their own conclusions because I had my own opinions, but um, they, they came up with all sorts of different ideas um, showing how different languages were uplifting because they noticed, you know, the braille in the, in the door signs. And uh, just thinking of, well, we have our aisle where, you know, we have all these languages that we learn at school. And then other students that come and say, but most of everything is in English only. We don't have welcome signs in different languages. Like that's a place where we can change and, and, and make positive changes in our schools. And so aligning the language of identity while they're learning, right, the, the language of access, but also providing them with the tools to be able to analyze their communities and find where those gaps are to make things better, I think uh, is so powerful and really uplifts the, the learning experiences to a different level where it empowers them to take action, to, to just uh, beautify the spaces where they are. And I think that's where really we can talk about those liberatory learning experiences to um, to just making our communities better in a, in a good way. That sounds like a really fun uh, project to do with students. Michelle, do you want to add anything? Um, I guess I will just say I, I'm still really sitting with what Natalia said about you are not half, you are double. And that I think if we as educators embrace that mentality, that our students are going to come out really owning their assets, um, you know, really owning I'm double, I'm triple, I'm quadruple. Um, and feeling good about themselves and, and feeling uh, comfortable communicating in a variety of spaces. So so I think that the end game here is um, is just embracing the wholeness of the learners that come into our classroom so that we are launching them as, as adults who you know celebrate the wholeness of, of who they are. Um, so I guess I would also close with, when, when we share this idea with, with professors, they often say, wow, that's really cool. Those two camps haven't talked to each other for a long time, the academic language and the, you know, the, the heritage language camps. But when we talk to teachers, they always say, well, yeah, that's what we do. Um, and so this is not controversial. This idea is not controversial in the classroom. Um, it's not controversial yet because it's not talked about, the tools are often created by teachers on their own. So this is an opportunity for us to just offer a handbook of sorts. So here are some things that you can pick up and just you know flesh out even further the good work that you're already doing. That actually segues to the final question where you can both share. I have a closing activity called Traffic Light Teaching where I ask the uh, podcast guests to say one thing that they want teachers to uh, consider stop doing, one thing they consider ask teachers to continue doing, and one thing they can ask teachers to start doing. So it's like stop, uh, continue, and start. Well, I'll take that. I, I think I kind of said it a few times, but I'll say it again. I think teachers need to stop. Um, if there's any tension to position yourself in one camp or the other, to not do that. Um, so, you know, to not say that I'm, I'm on team access or team identity, um, I think that because we see so much, you know, good homegrown work happening already to those teachers that are already doing it, 
I would say continue doing it. But for folks who are new to the field and perhaps new to this discussion, um, I would ask that they start doing it. Um, specifically, teachers who are not teachers of English. So if, if you're a geometry teacher, for example, or you know, you're a biology teacher, and this is just has not been on your mind in the in the past, this is time to start, right? Thinking about how can I give my students the linguistic tools to move on to the next thing, but how can I help my students value and validate the linguistic tools that they bring into the classroom? All right. I will say, um, stop saying we only use English. Uh, I know it's very well intended and it's meant to just foster um, more practice in one language, but um, we we need to provide opportunities to or for students to use their, their whole linguistic repertoire. I would say continue to uh, recognize those languages and, and to uplift um, students' backgrounds. I, I see a lot of teachers who are doing that, so continue doing that. And the last one I would say is start to normalize multilingualism. I think oftentimes because we exist in monolingual spaces, um, it's not that we are preventing it, but we're not normalizing it. And so building a community when, when you start your school year, normalizing that community where we all come from different backgrounds. We have different languages that we're bringing in. Normalize those pieces. Ask students, well, how do we say this word in your language? Like bring it into the classroom so that students feel comfortable even bringing it up because I see a lot of students shutting down that part of themselves um, when the invitation isn't there. And so start start inviting that multilingualism into your spaces. Well, I hope uh, teachers who listen to this podcast will think about using the term language of access, language identity, and to get your book so that they can create an inviting, welcoming space for their multilingual students to do both. Thank you so much, Natalia ben Benjamin and Dr. Michelle Berengas for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast. My invitation is to check out my three courses on English Learner Portal. One is on creating the conditions for MLs to thrive, one on teacher collaboration, and one based on my co-authored book with Beth Skelton called Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals. Now, on to our recap. The main thing that I'm taking from this conversation is seeing instruction through both language of access and identity. Students need both academic language to access professional and academic settings. In fact, it's tapping into identities that makes communicating more effective, more relevant, and much more meaningful. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.